In the history of England, few kings are so overlooked as William II. Known as Longsword to his family growing up, but remembered today as Rufus or the Red, William Rufus is the king most folks know very little about, some may recall. He was the king killed in a hunting accident over in the New Forest. He ruled for only a decade or so, yet for a king who was in charge for such a short time, he was to leave a lasting legacy upon London and Westminster. His imprint upon London is still there, and recently, William II's legacy was witnessed by hundreds of millions of people across the world. So who was this king, and why is his story important to London? And why did people either love this guy or hate him? Well, I hope to answer some of those questions this chapter, along with a whole load of detail about what was going on in London at the time. Hi, my name is Saul, and this is chapter 54 of The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the history of this mighty city as a single long narrative tale, each chapter taking us a little further along its story. It's designed to be a podcast you can follow along with, and right now we have over 25 hours worth of materials for you to listen to, or you can jump right in into any standalone episode. And we've reached the year 1090, and therefore I'd like to cordially invite you to chapter 54, A Red Storm Over London. Okay, so before we get into what was going on in London at the time, I need to talk about the fact that we are often presented with two very differing versions of the life of William II of England. You see, there are two competing narratives about his life, written basically by two groups of people, the English and the French. Now, this wasn't some kind of Normans versus the Saxons type of thing going on. But rather, it had to do with a very specific argument at the time. Oddly enough, when you get to a generation later and you read the accounts of William II's life, written by the big historical writers of the time, men like Uderic Vitalis, William of Malmesbury, and Henry of Huntington, they all tend to have sided with the English side of the argument. But it's worth keeping in mind that they all based on what they said on what was written by a man called Edmar, and they ignore the writings of the French chroniclers of the king, like Geoffrey Gaymar or someone called Wace, which were written at the same time as Edmar's. As much as I could get into a really detailed account of all these things, I don't think I've got the skill or the ability to do it justice. So, as always, I'm just going to simplify things like a bad boy. Basically, the problem stems from a man called Anselm of Canterbury, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury who took over after Lanfranc died, and he was high-strung. I mean, sure, he was this brilliant Italian theologian, and he's now known as Saint Anselm, and I will not question his faith, but he does come across as the patron saint of Karens, whose desire to speak to the manager means I doubt any king of England would have gotten on with him at all. Edmar was Saint Anselm's secretary. And he wrote two books, 
Historia Novarum in Anglia, which translates as the history of novelties in England, and another which was a straight biography of St. Anselm. And it is in Eadmar's writings that we get this really negative version of William II, which he probably picked up from his high-strung archbishop. This has led to many debates about how accurate Eadmar's version of William II is, and that debate is still ongoing. So, where does this leave us trying to look at a king who was to influence London so much? Well, the best bet seems to be to point out what was written at the time and what was written later. Let me give you an example. In the 1090s, it is from a monk called Herman of Bury St. Edmunds that we hear that William II was known as Longsword. So I've been calling him that leading up to this chapter. However, please note, about 15 to 20 years after William II died, he picked up the nickname Rus Ri, or Red King, and we assume that was done to differentiate himself from his father. Later, men could talk about William the Conqueror and William the Red. And that nickname stuck, hence why he is today known as William Rufus. So while I'm going to call him William Rufus from here on in, I'm just going to be transparent about what came from when he was alive and what came later. Secondly, I'm also going to try and focus on the things both his detractors and his admirers agreed upon. For example, Idmar criticised Rufus for his endless sarcasm. To the monk, the king would constantly mock serious men trying to raise serious issues. However, the French writer at the time, Gamer, says Rufus was very quick to laugh and was a master of diffusing tensions between men, using humour, and he was always willing to mock himself first. So, we can say for certain that William Rufus had a very strong sense of humour, and that maybe Aidmar was all upset in his petticoats about it. Keeping that in mind, what we can say with certainty about William II of England, well... He was a soldier's kind of king. He was a bold and possibly brilliant military commander. While he never did anything as impressive as what his father did, certainly he had serious military chops. We know he was funny. We know he swore a lot. No, seriously, this guy could curse. He appears to have run a regime that was a money-making machine, and I'll come back to that later on. And above all, he was the king more than any ruler since Alfred the Great to have impacted upon the very buildings of London. Partly, this was due to circumstances. William II oversaw a great deal of rebuilding in London, especially after the second fire in a decade. And some of the building projects had been started back when his father had been on the throne. You may remember a couple of chapters ago, I described the start of the building of the Abbey in Bermondsey in 1082. Well, it appears that by the summer of 1089, it was finished, and that Alwyn Child, the Saxon merchant who originally patronised it, was there alongside King William Rufus to grant the Abbey to the Kulniak Order, specifically four monks invited over from the Abbey of La Charité in Normandy. Now, this was a significant move, given how important the Kulniak order were becoming across Europe right now. I won't go into detail about it here, but be assured in a future chapter, I will come back to the Kulniaks of Bermondsey, as they do become important. 
We know from archaeological records that the next year in 1090, the building work on the White Tower of London stopped dead for three years. But no explanation is ever actually given to us. It could have been some aftermath of Geoffrey de Mandeville's attempted rebellion, where, as I said, we think he tried to seize the tower and hold it against the king. Or it could have been because after the fire of 1087, there'd been a need for stone to be used elsewhere, such as St. Paul's Cathedral, which was being rebuilt. Or it could be something else. We don't know. I tend to favour that, you know, St. Paul's needed stone, and St. Paul's was the Episcopal seat of the Chancellor of England. And it makes me think that Bishop Maurice was being all... Well, the house of God needs this stone more than that tower does, you know. But given that most of the rebuilding of St. Paul's was done after Bishop Maurice died, I can't say for certain. And then, in 1091, disaster hit London. Again. Yeah. Again. And, you know, so far, I've described the disasters that have hit the city of London as being floods, fires, war, and crime... Uh, politics, uh, famine, disease, Vikings, even a tsunami. But do you know what's missing from that list? Yep, that's right, a tornado. On November 16th, 1091, it was recorded that a violent, quote, whirlwind, unquote, described by several writers as an actual tornado, smashed into London and the south of England, where it destroyed, apparently, over six hundred houses to the roofs of a score more, lifted the huge wooden roof of the church of St. Mary Le Beau in London and embedded it deep into the ground, tore huge chunks out of London Bridge, and some have said it even damaged the White Tower, which could be why building stopped. Now, at this point, however, I have to say, as lurid and as wonderful as it is to describe such a thing, I have read commentary by people who write about tornadoes, and they are very unsure about the provenance of this claim, suggesting the damaged area wasn't just London, but wider. And not only do tornadoes tend not to be that big, they also point out that the prevailing weather conditions in England in November are very conducive for the creation of massive winter storms, but not so much for actual tornadoes. It's difficult to be precise, but I think we can say that this was a horrendous weather system that caused extensive damage to the city, so much so it should be considered a disaster. And so, by 1091, over the space of just the last five years, London has been hit by a famine, an epidemic of typhoid, it has been burned down, seen political violence erupt on its streets and an attempted rebellion, been in the front line of a short-lived civil war, and was now suffering from catastrophic damage caused by what sounds like tornado strength winds. Long-term listeners may recall all the way back in chapters 9 and 10 of this podcast. I mentioned that after the first series Viking Rage in 1051, I said that the first true distinctive characterization of the residents of London seems to have been their intransigence, their stubbornness, and their perseverance. 240 years ago, before this moment, Londoners had endured and carried on when across the North Sea, bigger and greater ports than them were being abandoned in the face of horror and disaster. Here, now, 
this version of London seems to be displaying the same characteristics. Disasters beyond count seem to be impacting upon it, and yet the residents remain, they rebuild, they endure. The damage to London Bridge caused by this storm stands out to me as possibly making it unusable, and that would have required immediate repairs. It could never have been easy to repair the bridge in those days, and once again, we're desperate to know more details, but nothing's been recorded. Still, I will state boldly, without a single shred of evidence, that I think London would have prioritised the rebuilding of the bridge, not just because of its importance as the only river crossing over the Thames this far down river, but also for its potential defensive importance. Rebuilding the rebuilding of London seems to have now become a priority. The weather remained awful for a few years as well. In 1092, we have records of it being another terribly wet year in London, and it's recorded that the winter was so severe that several rivers were frozen over across England. Was the Thames? Nothing specifically is mentioned, but parts of it could have been. Regular listeners cannot help but have noticed now the many mentions of the weather I include in all the episodes. And anybody listening who's not native to Britain are now free to insert as many jokes as they like about the standard British obsession with the weather. However, there is slightly more to my constant mentions than just an obsession with what's going on in the sky. Remember, this is a society wherein the infrastructure of the state depended upon the weather. If there was a bad year, the harvest failed. The nation never had the reserves to cope with a failed harvest. There would be an automatic shortage of food, a rise in the price of remaining foodstuffs, and an automatic subsequent economic contraction. Food would have to be shipped in if any relief was coming at all, and that shipping in would have added to the expense of any food brought in, again placing undue burdens upon the poorer and already vulnerable members of this society. A bad harvest didn't always mean there would be a famine, but the conditions for one were there, especially as we'd just seen twice during the reign of William the Conqueror. Added to this, the society in question was incredibly fragile. A serious frost was felt. Their homes were not our homes. Frosts and floods could and did take lives. The elements could kill people. I mean, it's easy for us, listening to words said by a stranger on a phone, to forget that the principal design feature of our homes today is to protect us from the outside. We see the weather through double glazed windows with our central heating and insulated walls. And most of us right now are safe and protected by these buildings. We are not, on the whole, in the weather, merely watching it. For residents of London, those vibrant, energetic and enduring souls, the weather was something they had happened to them. They had to cope with it. A storm could and did destroy bridges and homes. A few bad months could and did cause crops to fail. Frost could impact upon your health or even kill you. 
I often think that the British obsession with weather stems from the simple reality that this was a tough place to live in at times. And the weather could make a significant difference between an easy year and a very hard year, between life and death. Which I suppose is a nice way for me to tell you all that as the chapters go on, I'm always going to mention the weather in London, for good or for bad. By 1094, however, this rebuilding and improving of London was in full spring, when it appears to find itself having a front row seat in the big political argument of the time. And while I could spend at least a whole chapter focusing on the exact issues and the ins and outs of this spellbinding little story, I want to focus really on how London was introduced to it. And I'm going to do that by telling you some local colour. You see, just to the northeast of London was the small village of Harrow. We know from the Doomsday Book, Harrow at this time was home to 102 villagers, two cottagers, two slaves, and a priest. And its annual £56 of tax revenue and 2,000-plus pigs who lived nearby were the property of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Back in 1087, Archbishop Lanfranc had ordered that a nice new church should be built for the village to be called St. Mary's. It was finally completed and ready to be consecrated within a few years, but there was an issue. Archbishop Lanfranc had died in 1089, and the appointment of his replacement had been slow. Very slow. The reasons basically seemed to be that the guy who everybody wanted to be his replacement, Anselm of Beck, didn't want the job. He had reasons, but bottom line, it meant that the Archbishop Frick of Canterbury was vacant for a few years, which suited both King William Rufus and his Chancellor, Bishop Maurice of London, as all the revenues and tithes that were meant to go to the Archbishop Frick, oh, they went to the king. Just, you know, while we're waiting. Standard practice, really. When Anselm finally did take over the See of Canterbury, this little detail was a bone of contention between him and the king. Anselm was a champion of the theological faction of the era who were advocating the church should be all-powerful and kings should respect our authority. So take on board that the new archbishop was not best pleased with the king having had a few years to pocket the funds he couldn't collect because he'd been pissing about vacillating if he was going to take the job or not. And now we get to the story of the church in Harrow. See, the story goes that on the day of the consecration of the parish church of St. Mary's Harrow, there was an argument. Harrow, as we said, belonged to the Archbishop of Canterbury and had done for ages. But it was within the jurisdiction of the Diocese of the Bishop of London. Apparently this made St. Mary's a peculiar a church within the jurisdiction of one bishop, but owned by another bishop. It wasn't the only peculiar in London. The Archbishop of Canterbury was a significant London landlord, as well as the church in Harrow. Their properties included the now-lost church of St. Dionys Back Church in what we today call Fenchurch Street, as well as that church I mentioned a few chapters ago, St. Mary Le Occubus on Cheapside, where the Ecclesiastical Appeals Court was conducted in its basement. 
As I described back in chapter 14, the Mercian way London had been set up after Alfred the Great moved the town behind the walls and placed it under the jurisdiction of his son-in-law, Aethelred of Mercia, meant that much of London was owned by outside landlords, and so churches under non-London-based dioceses like All Hallows Barking, which stood over by the White Tower and was owned by Barking Abbey, you know, that place William the Conqueror stayed while the damage his men had done to Westminster was being repaired, they were here and there. Anyway, back in 1094, our little story goes that Bishop Maurice felt that because this new church in Harrow was under his jurisdiction, he should officiate the consecration ceremony. But Archbishop Anselm was having none of that, and so he turned up and insisted he should consecrate the church. Archbishop Anselm pulled rank and won the argument. But then, on the day of consecration, it was discovered that the holy oil to be used in the ceremony was missing. And, the story goes, Archbishop Anselm said it was stolen and the theft had been carried out by a man working for Bishop Maurice. Now, whatever the bishop's response was to this, we're not told. But we do see that the Lord works in mysterious ways. And by a holy miracle, a new jar of holy oil was found. And in 1084, Anselm consecrated the church. Now, keep in mind, this entire story could just be made up to add some local colour and flavour. But if it was true, well, it could simply be a case of Anselm's men misplacing the holy oil, him flying off the handle like some kind of drama queen, accusing the Bishop of London of theft, and then, when the oil was found, he tried to style it out. You know, by saying, it's completely new vial of holy oil, it must be a miracle! Or it could just be Bishop Maurice getting upset at Anselm and being miffed and not being able to do the consecration ceremony and so whispered something like, hey, Alfred, go steal that holy oil and we can flog it down on Cheapside tomorrow. Yeah. Or the whole thing could be a thinly veiled attempt to explain away the tensions between the Archbishop and the King, whose Chancellor and main money man was the Bishop of London, this was their way of trying to explain the missing revenues Anselm felt the king should never have gotten hold of. If we take it as that, then we do get a slight insight into the larger political conflict going on. At his heart, Anselm was fairly high-strung, but he had seen how the Pope back in Rome, Urban II, was conducting business issuing decrees, expecting everyone to obey him, eyeballing secular rulers with all the authority of a man chosen by God. Anselm just wanted to get the same in England. His problem, William Rufus was a pragmatist, a tough military leader given to copious amounts of foul language and possessing a wicked sense of humour. And these two were going to clash a lot. And now we go full circle and we're back for the reasons why Anselm's secretary, writing a couple of books later on, made William out to be the bad guy. Our records for London during this era are mostly church-based. Perhaps, while we do not know anything about the rebuilding after the fire and the tornado, but we do know that the Church of St. Stephen Walbrook is to believe to have been built in this era, as it's mentioned on the west side of Walbrook Street, 
its original location before it was moved to the other side a few hundred years later. It is in church records in London that we get a glimpse of someone who was to be very important to London in this rebuilding era. We need to talk about a guy called Ranulf Flambard. Ranulf was born in Normandy, we think about 1060, and was supposedly the son of a priest, and therefore this explains why he found his first real job working for Bishop Odo of Bayeux. In time, this job brought him to the attention of William I, and Ranulf ended up working in the chancellery, where he was seen as a high flyer, possessing dashing good looks and a smart, practical mind. He quickly made a name for himself as one of William the Conqueror's better financiers and administrators, and was becoming a high-profile backroom type of guy working for the new Norman regime. There are some who suggest he was, back in 1086, one of the crucial organisers of the Doomsday Survey, and at least one historian I've read thinks Ranulf may have been the guy who was the driving force behind the whole thing, generating revenues for the crown. Before William the Conqueror had died, Ranulf had ended up working for the Chancellor of England, Bishop Maurice, and supposedly he held the title of chaplain for Maurice. From here, he was ideally placed within the bishop's household to come to the attention of the new king. And he did. You have to understand, Ranulf Flambard was good with money. He understood how to play the system and raise cash for the crown and himself fairly easily. And that's why we have records of him in London. You see, there was this old church position, the prebends. A prebendary officer of any church were usually the deacons or the canons of it, and their job was to basically oversee the administration and financing of any such church. These positions were crucial for the maintenance of churches and cathedrals and abbeys, which often had some serious estates attached to them, and they needed competent administrators. Added to that, these positions were paid. Prebendary officials earned cash. And Ranulf saw this as a unique opportunity. When William the Conqueror died, Ranulf was already a prebendal officer for several churches in Hampshire, Lincoln and Salisbury. But now he suddenly appears in the records of the currently being rebuilt after it burnt down St. Paul's Cathedral. How Ranulf Lambard ended up in London is easy to understand. We know that staff in the Royal Chancellery were rotated between Winchester and London. So Ranulf, the chaplain of the Bishop of London, Maurice, now becomes a prebendal officer of St. Paul's Cathedral. And quickly, it is clear, Ranulf recognised London's unique position as a channel for funds and monies and established himself a base here. How do we know that? Well, when you look at the officers of St. Paul's within a year or so later, you see named as prebends Ranulf, his brother Fulcher, his other brother Osborne, and his nephews, Osborne's sons, Elias and Ralph. Five members of his family were now drawing salary from St. Paul's. He seems to have created for himself a nice little earner. St. Paul's was, as we said, a wreck at this point, 
and the need for rebuilding was dominating funds and resources. But now Ranulf was based in London, or had a base in London, he could help expedite this rebuilding much faster, as well as all those other rebuilding projects in London. Trust me when I say, Ranulf was a genius when it came to raising money, and his status rose accordingly. He became the keeper of the king's seal, supposedly moved from being the chaplain of the chancellor, Bishop Maurice, to becoming the chaplain of King Rufus himself. He was known as the royal treasurer. He was known as the procurator of England. He was known as the justicar of the realm. Later on, the historian William of Mulsbury just calls him the, quote, manager of the whole kingdom, unquote. Ranulf's main skill seems to have been his ability to come up with a plethora of schemes that raised money for the state and maybe cut himself into a little bit of the action on the process. He was famed for pressing lawsuits from the treasury to extract every penny out of anyone and he was excellent in gaining relief. That's the revenues that should go to a noble or a bishop for a while but because the noble's successor isn't in place, it goes to the king. So that whole thing I mentioned when I was talking about Harrow, how William Rufus collected monies from the estate of the Archbishop of Canterbury before Anselm took his post, that was Ranulf. And at the same time, because the Archbishop of Canterbury was somewhat flighty and very high strung, it was during this era, at one point, where Anselm went off in a sulk from England for a while. He wasn't exiled, he just didn't want to be near that nasty brute of a king who keeps laughing when he's trying to be serious. And that meant there was no Archbishop of Canterbury for a while, which meant there was no one to replace the vacant Bishop Fricks and Abbot's positions in England. Ranulf saw this as a tremendous cash-making opportunity, as that meant there were a bunch of rich church buildings he could make himself temporary administrator over. It is claimed at one point that Renaud Flambard was personally managing 16 abbeys and bishopricks across England and collecting the cash from all of them. Eventually, by 1099, he became a bishop, which later commentators said he paid a thousand pounds for the right. And it is said that when William Rufus was busy prosecuting wars in Normandy and in Scotland, and I am missing loads of William's life out here as I'm focusing on London, Ranulf was back in England issuing writs, passing judgments, and acting in all ways like he was the regent of the nation. Ranulf Flambard comes across as the true precursor of the later City of London fathers. Here we have the first example of a savvy, slick, money-making genius coming to London and making money hand over fist. Now, his impact upon London specifically was twofold. Um, firstly, he seems to have been driven by the desire to generate cash for the regime so intently, he didn't care if he annoyed the other residents of London. It said he screwed over Westminster Abbey by ordering a reassessment of the land owned by the Abbey of St. Peter's in order to put their value up so then he could charge them new taxes. But his biggest impact upon the city was clearly getting funds for the rebuilding of several parts of London. 
There were, by 1097, three major building constructions taking place in London. You had the rebuilding of London Bridge after the tornado had damaged it. At the same time, Ranulph sped up and expanded the development of the White Tower of London. He ordered the building of a new wall to go around the tower, which would enclose a new inner ward. And then he ordered the construction of a moat to go around that wall. And on top of all of this, he was constructing a new royal hall over on Thorny Island, a mammoth construction. And all this work wasn't a small thing. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle itself says of the year 1097 the following, quote, Many counties also that were confined to London by work were grievously oppressed on account of the wall that they were building about the tower and the bridge that was nearly all afloat and the work of the King's Hall they were building on Westminster and many men perished thereby, unquote. So this is clearly some serious work here. Taxes and labour and treasures are being directed into London to focus on these capital projects, which were seeing workers killed as, you know, health and safety regulations hadn't been imagined yet. And oh look, some backroom technocrat is prioritising high-profile projects in London and the surrounding regions are being ignored. Gee... I wonder if we're ever going to see that happen again. That hall Ranulph was funding for the king, it still exists today. And it still remains, symbolically, at the heart of the English state. It was this hall where Queen Elizabeth II was laid in state. And it was from this great hall, which was paid for and overseen by the machinations of Ranulph Flambard, that that amazing queue had snaked across London from. Westminster Hall was and is an amazing structure and remains today the only part of the original medieval palace of Westminster that remains. The aim of it was to impress, and impress it did. The hall was immediately, way and by far, the largest hall in England at the time, and some maintain that when it was constructed, it could well have been the largest hall in the whole of Europe. The official Palace of Westminster website uses that most quintessentially English of measuring units by describing the length inside as being, quote, almost four cricket pitches end to end, unquote. The hall was a grand ceremonial space, not a living space. It was too large to actually allow anybody to live there comfortably. Westminster Palace therefore required other smaller halls and chambers to be constructed nearby. While we only see this majestic hall today, it's worth remembering that William Rufus had constructed an entire complex over on Thorny Island. Now, according to the official descriptions, there is a supposed controversy and mystery about Westminster Hall. The story goes that no one could build freestanding roofs like the one over the hall for at least another two to three hundred years after it was created. And so the descriptions went that a single or double row of columns was needed to support the hall's heavy roof. And it would have to be a few centuries later that a future king upgraded the hall so the roof was freestanding. 
However, apparently, archaeological explorations of a hall at Westminster have yet to find any evidence of such columns, which leads some to believe that the mighty wooden roof had been self-supporting from the beginning. If so, then possibly the answer lies in the hall's stone walls, which were an almighty six feet thick and are largely still in their original form today. We know that basically the way to see the hall as it was intended to be seen was not as this big, empty, somewhat bare space that it is today. It was originally like the inside of some early medieval shopping mall or arcade. Huge arched windows allowed light to stream in, illuminating a checkerwork pattern of black and dark stones around them. All the walls were plastered, painted brightly and multicolored and ornate decorative hangings were draped all over the place. It was a splendid ceremonial space designed to cause awe. This hall was to project the majesty and gravitas of the king to all the world. Is what Edward the Confessor wanted, but on a much grander scale. But of course, it was just a palace, not a fortress. If the royal personage ever felt threatened, Thorny Island would offer no defence. But in that case, the king could just jump on a boat and quietly sail along the river under the newly restored bridge and make his way to the newly restored fortress of the White Tower. London was slowly reinforcing its role as a bastion of royal power, it seems. And so, in 1099, as we approach the year 1100 and the 12th century begins, the entry for the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, This year was the King William at midwinter in Normandy, and at Easter came hither to land, and at Pentecost held his court the first time in his new building at Westminster. And there he gave the bishopric of Durham to Ranulf, his chaplain, who had long directed and governed his councils over all England. And soon after this, he went over the sea and drove the Earl Elias out of Maine, which he reduced under his power. And so, by Michaelmas, returned to this land. Unquote. Ah, here you can see William Rufus getting on with the affairs of England leading English armies over in France, granting titles to the man who made him money, and striding this giant hall like the colossus he seems. And London had passed from really bad few years where disaster seems to be happening every other year and entered a long period of peace and prosperity, free from any future disaster. Nah, I'm just kidding. This is London in the late 10th century. Of course another disaster hit it, and in this case the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says about that year, 1099, quote, This year also on the festival of St. Martin, the sea flood sprung up to such a height and did so much harm as no man remembered it had ever done before, and this was the first day of the new moon, unquote. A huge sea flood smashed into England, supposedly on the east coast and supposedly along the Thames estuary and it devastated the adjacent lands of North Kent. It's not known whether London was affected. There are scattered legends that say this great flood was responsible for the formation of Goodwin Sands. And we also know that this flooding this year also affected the Dutch coastal regions. So what we could be looking at here is a huge North Sea autumnal storm surge. And there are reports of thousands of deaths. I can't help but feel London should have been affected. We just don't know how much. 
The distinct lack of reference to it does suggest that either A, it wasn't that bad, or B, it was that bad, but the writers of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle were a bit distracted at the time. And I have reason to believe that the writers of the Chronicle were distracted. Seriously distracted. Because something huge was about to happen. There we see William Rufus, busy ruling England and conducting military operations in places like Normandy and Wales very easily, and was basically at the height of his game and was facing at least a decade where he could rule and build from this, and he's going to be killed next year while hunting in the New Forest. And those dynastic shenanigans we just escaped from, they're about to begin again. And at the same time, something else was going on in and around England at this moment, but that will require a whole episode to explain. But basically, I can see why the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle doesn't make too big a thing about what sounds like a catastrophic flood on the east coast of England that year. We enter the 12th century. And the wild roller coaster ride that is the story of London gets ready for some more intense new moments. But I'm going to leave it there. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate everyone who does listen to my overlong episodes. I will confess, when I started all of this, I promised myself that I'd only make the episode 30 minutes long. And, well, you know, I failed. I'd really like to thank all those lovely reviews people have been giving me over on Apple Podcasts. I'm genuinely honoured. And I'm also discovering reviews coming in from places I never expected. Apple never tells me when I get a good review. I've got to go find them. And I'd really like to thank the Apple user Louis Guitar from Germany for the wonderful review they gave me a few months ago, which I've only just discovered now. I just want to thank you for your kind words. They really do make a difference. I'd also like to thank the wonderful community over on Imgur, I recently posted up the script to chapter 50 and I got just shy of 70,000 people reading it, which is an insane for the Catching Fire episode. Hopefully those who listen to the podcast enjoy this stuff also. You can always help the podcast by making a contribution to my Buy Me A Coffee page and if you can become a member, that will help keep the podcast going. Coming up, I have one of my special episodes due, meaning that there will be a week with two episodes in it. And we're also rapidly approaching the one-year anniversary of the story of London. This project has grown, and I hope you're all enjoying it as much as I enjoy making it. Anyway, enough of me talking. Thank you all, and see you next time for another episode of the story of London. <laughs>